This is our second week in a series that we're calling The Search for Meaning, studying the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, we looked at a bunch of major themes and some of the background of the book. The book is written by Solomon, who was the king of Israel, kind of following in his dad's footsteps, King David. And he's at the end of his life, and he's looking at his life, his life as a king, his life as the richest man in the world, and looking at what, what is the amount of his life. And so he's presenting all of his life and his findings about life and what he pursued as the teacher. He takes on this persona as the teacher. And he's really a presenter of a research project. Ecclesiastes kind of presents like that. Here's everything that I've done, says Solomon, and here's how empty it was, everything that I pursued in life. And so the underlying assumption of all of this is that Solomon believes that we were created for a purpose beyond ourselves. He wants his life to have meaning beyond its, its own self, a life for something else. And so it creates this idea for us that our lives are meant to be given to someone or to something. So it extends beyond just us, out beyond that. And so we, through Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 last Sunday, we looked at all the things that Solomon pursued to give his life meaning. Earthly wisdom, pleasure, work, wealth. And all of them, he uses this Hebrew word, havel. All of it is havel. The NIV translates that word as meaningless. The ESV translates it as vanity. But really the word means what we talked about last week. You might remember I lit a candle and blew it out. It means smoke. It means smoke or vapor or mist. It's the kind of thing that once you grab onto it, it disappears. It's so fleeting that it's real. It's a real thing. We can see the smoke, but by the time we grab onto it, it's lost its substance. And the idea it creates for us is that Solomon pursued all of these things, and it was all havel. It was all smoke. By the time he actually grabbed onto it, it didn't hold any weight. It couldn't hold the responsibility that he put onto it. And so he summarizes this. In Ecclesiastes 1.14, he says, I have seen all the things that are under the sun. He's pursued all of them. All of them are meaningless. All of them are Havel, a chasing after the wind. And I saw a quote this week as I was studying that I think really summarizes what is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's from Jacques Ellul, and he's a French philosopher and theologian. And this is the quote. In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose all hope in everything that deceives. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's all the ways that Solomon pursued life, and they were all deceptive and havel, meaningless. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And so where do we go to find a life of meaning? We just started kind of getting at the answer. He gives us little snippets of the truth, and today we kind of continue that search and one of the things that we're going to look at today is the importance or the willingness that we have to have. To have a life of meaning, you have to be willing to go through hardship. You have to be willing to embrace things that are discomfort internally to you. We have to learn to embrace things that go against our internal desires and feelings. We have to be willing to go through tough things. Back in 2018, there was what I think was a really important book written by a social psychologist and a lawyer that co-wrote this book called The Coddling of the American Mind. 
And the book focuses on three different, what they call untruths of society. And the first one is the untruth of fragility, the untruth that we are fragile people. And the premise is that society treats us like we are fragile people, that what doesn't kill us actually makes us weaker. At least that's how we approach life. And this is how they kind of summarize this idea that we should reject anything that causes us to go through hardships so that we can have a life of ease and comfort. They summarize this section in this way. A culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. That is quite the quote. And I think it's absolutely true. Our society has tried to figure out ways to push hardship and difficult things away. And in the process, we've not allowed ourselves to become, as they call it, strong and healthy, or what Solomon might say, to have a life of meaning. If everything is only comfortable and easy, we'll never have a life of meaning. We have to train ourselves to pursue hard things and to embrace hard things. Paul says it this way in in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, when I am weak, then I become strong. And so there's a spiritual principle behind this cultural ideal as well. Back when I was 22 years old, I had just started seminary, which is kind of like school for pastors. And I was in a kind of introductory class, and we were playing a little getting-to-know-you game because all of us didn't know each other. We were from all different parts of the country, had moved to Portland, and we're going to school there. And we all had different aspirations of what were we going to do, and there was this unknown of where's God going to take us. Rose and I at the time thought, maybe we'll move to Colorado. Maybe we'll go overseas and become missionaries. And so it was a big unknown And I remember the professor had us all write down two places that we would never want to move to. (laughs) Because we were talking about, like, where's God going to take us? Number one on my list, Los Angeles, California. Never wanted to move there. And, you know, the funny thing is some of Rose and I's best friends live in Orange County, Los Angeles, California. And so one of our favorite places to visit is to go to L.A. to go see them and to visit them now. So, L.A. Number two, Salem, Oregon. (laughs) Salem, Oregon. Grew up here, grew up in Kaiser, went to college in Newburgh, moved to Portland, and never wanted to come back. And so some of you know my story in that I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad's been a pastor my whole life, and I wanted no part of that as an adult. And all the way until I was 22 years old, That was my same answer all the way through college, wanted no part of it. And God did this amazing work. So here I am in the place that I didn't want to live, doing the job I didn't want to do. And I can tell you that God is good, that God is good, that he brought me here in the place I didn't want to be doing the thing I didn't want to do, and that God is good. And then along the way, I had to learn how to embrace hard things because that went against my internal desire. It went against that. And I think that's maybe a key lesson for us as we study Ecclesiastes 3. And so if you have your Bible, 
I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. The words will be on the screen, but if you're following along, Ecclesiastes shortly after Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. Solomon says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And believe it or not, Ecclesiastes 3, one, one, specifically 1 through 8, is one of the more recognized parts of the Bible and is definitely the most well-known parts of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this isn't because people just love reading the book of Ecclesiastes. The reason why is back in 1965, in the summer, there was a song released by the birds called Turn, 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 which quotes verbatim lengthy sections of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Some of you are humming the turn, turn in your head, right? It reached Billboard magazine number one song in December of 1965. Now, why was it so popular? Well, it had a message of tolerance, of love, and of peace. And what was happening culturally at the time was the Vietnam War and all sorts of cultural upheaval were happening all at once. And so people were looking at the world and thinking, this is all going terribly. But it's Ecclesiastes 3 presents this idea of this life being cyclical. So if it's bad, eventually it's going to be good. So let's get some of that good. And people kind of grabbed on to this message using the birds and their kind of folk rock pop sound of 12-string guitars in harmonies, people grabbed on to this idea of we can have hope. It's bad right now, but eventually the season will change and things will get better. But I think that's actually a very poor way of understanding Ecclesiastes 3 and that the birds did a disservice to the message of Ecclesiastes 3, that there's actually something more going on here. And the only way to really understand what Solomon's saying 
in Ecclesiastes 3 is to have the right lens with which you're viewing the text and understanding what is being said. Now, what is that worldview? Well, that's what we're going to spend our time kind of looking into. And at the beginning of this, we really have to ask the question to have the right lens of who is God. We have to ask that question, who is God? First and foremost, God is transcendent, meaning God is beyond. He is above. He is outside of this human sphere that we live in. He does not exist, to use an Ecclesiastes term, exclusively under the sun. He doesn't just live right here. You might immediately think of Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You might think of that, but I want to look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah, same, same book, just different chapter, that highlights the transcendence of God. He says this, remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times and what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. What a striking thing for God to say. What I have planned, that I will do. God sees it all, everything, all at once, from beginning to end. He is not like us, where we often struggle to see right beyond the circumstances that we're living in in the present moment. Even those are sometimes hard for us to hold on to. God sees everything, all at once, all the time. That's what Isaiah 46 is showing us. But God isn't just only transcendent. God is also imminent. Imminent, meaning that God is close. He is intimate with us. You might think of Psalm 139. You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Psalm 139. But I want to draw our attention to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, which talks about the closeness of God. He says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. What Jeremiah, what God is saying here in Jeremiah is that God is not only present in the world, but God knows you intimately well. We might even be able to say it this way, like Psalm 139 seems to say, God knows you better then you know yourself. That's how close, that's how imminent God is. He's closer to you than you realize. And I think many Christians have what we might call a deist perspective on God. God is kind of a clockwork God who he set everything in motion. He created everything. And then God just kind of stands back and he just watches it all happen. So there's no reason to pray because everything's just going to happen in the way God set it in motion. But what Jeremiah 23, what Psalm 139 show us is that God's intimately involved. He creates you. He forms you. He guides you. He provides for you. He cares for you in an intimate way. As we talked about last week, God sees you right where you are. Each 
in every one of you. God sees you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so God is both transcendent and imminent. He is far away. He's powerful. He's establishing and upholding. And at the same time, he is also close and intimate and caring for each and every one of us. And these two aspects that I shared from Isaiah and Jeremiah, I think are the context for which God is saying them is you have a people of God who are turning away from him and God is reminding them of who he is. And now think back to Solomon's life circumstance where he began much of his life and his power and his riches trying to honor the Lord. And he slowly but surely stepped away from God. And now at the end of his life, he's reflecting back on who God is and how he might be at work in his life. And he's reflecting on, I think Ecclesiastes 3 highlights it well, that God is transcendent and imminent at the same time. That God weaves you together. He allots your time. He allots your place and at the same time, he is more intimate and in knowing of you than you know yourself. And so these two ideas that God is transcendent over it all and imminent, caring intimately for each and every one of us, have to be held together before we enter into Ecclesiastes 3 to really understand what Solomon is saying. What he's saying when he says there's a season for everything, a time for everything. There's birth and death and weeping and laughter and mourning and dancing. He's highlighting a reality that we've all experienced in life. All of us have lived those things. Life is full of joy and sorrow. Life is full of building and destroying, living and dying. And the, the idea that it creates for us is that life has changed and life will change. It will keep continuing on moving forward. And so sorrow is coming your way and joy is coming your way. Both of those things are happening. And so we could think of Ecclesiastes 3 kind of presenting this idea of God as like a master baker. Nobody likes to eat raw butter, right? A whole stick of butter, that sounds disgusting. And nobody likes to eat baking soda all by himself. That's rather bland and dry. And you especially don't want to eat flour all by itself. But if you mix those things together and you add sugar and eggs and chocolate chips and then you bake it, everybody loves chocolate chips, right? So God is kind of this amazing master baker who's putting all of these things of life together. Why? Why is he doing this? He's saying, I have a deep purpose in mind. It says in verse 10, Solomon says, I have seen the business that God has given people to be busy with. I have seen the purpose that God has for your life. Why are all these things mixed together in this thing for life? He answers that. Why? In verse 11. He tells us in three different ways. He uses three different phrases in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 3, which I think all highlight God's purpose. Why all these things, these ingredients to life mixed together? Why? Well, first of all, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautiful in its time. And this word that he uses for beautiful actually means appropriate or right. He has made everything at the right time in the right way. It is beautiful in your life because it's at the right time. Now, he doesn't, notice he doesn't just say that everything good coming into your life is beautiful. And everything good coming into your life is right and appropriate, he says, 
everything. Now, that's a hard word. Everything in your life is beautiful in its time. Even the incredible loss and heartache and pain that you face is beautiful in its time. Why? Because God has brought it into your life. I remember the day so well that our firstborn, Judah, was born. Rose started having contractions in the middle of the night, woke me up at 5 a.m. We eventually went to the hospital at 7 a.m. And we got there and they said, well, you're not quite far along enough. And Rose was determined not to go back home. So we started walking the hallways at the hospital there, doing all sorts of like exercises and stretching and crazy stuff, trying to get her to progress along. By 10 o'clock, she had finally progressed far enough that we got a room. And things were going slowly. So, you know, 12, 1 o'clock, something like that. My mother-in-law and my mom are both in the room. And I'm thinking, you know, this is, I'm kind of hungry. This is taking a long time. I'm going to go get lunch, okay? We're good here, right? Yeah, so I was such a good husband, I just left. Uh, I went and got lunch. Then later on in the afternoon, things started to progress. And Rose started to develop back pain. And so I'm pushing on her back in all some specific areas because she's a massage therapist and told me, like, where to push and how hard and all that sort of thing. And so hours and hours in the afternoon go on. And then eventually, finally, a little bit after dinner time, they decide, okay, we're far enough along, we can start pushing. And the pushing continues and continues. And after three hours of pushing, they finally have a doctor come in. And the doctor says, hey, uh, we want to get this baby out, but this baby has to come out really quickly or we're going to have to intervene. And so my blood pressure is like sky high. I can't even imagine how my wife is at the moment. I'm pushing on her back. And I don't know about some of you guys, but I'm an up-by-the-shoulders guy. Like, I don't need to go down, down below and see everything that's happening. So I'm up by my shoulders trying to be an encouragement. And thank the Lord, the doctors didn't have to intervene. Judah was born, and it was glorious and wonderful. And we were exhausted. It was like, what, 18, 19 hours of labor, and we were both tired. And uh, the thing that I remember more than anything about all of this, though, is a day later, my parents come and visit us at the hospital, and my dad says to Rose, well, how you doing? And I'm thinking, Dad, read the room. Like, we've had 64 minutes of sleep in the last two days. It was horribly traumatic. My blood pressure is still through the roof. My wife is in pain. Like, this is... We're not doing well. It's very obvious, right? And Rose says to my dad, you know what's crazy? I'd do it again. <laughs> and I was like, how, how on earth is that, that possible? That's something that was so painful and really awful and horrible. Granted, we got a kid. It was beautiful and amazing, but it was, it was horrible. And it took me days, weeks. It's still a traumatic experience. I think you can tell as I, I talk about it. Uh, how is that possible? Well, scientists would tell us that when a mom breastfeeds, that there is a hormone, a chemical hormone that's released in the body that alleviates pain. And what, what is, I think God in his infinite wisdom knew how difficult childbearing would be and made it possible for a woman immediately after birth to be able to forget about all of the pain and think about the blessing of new life. And so there's so much that is difficult about having a baby. There's so much. You start with nausea, and then you get back pain and swollen feet. 
Right, ladies? Some of you are like, let me tell you about mine. There's, they're worse than that, right? I get it. I get it. I, don't, I haven't lived it, but I get it, right? There's so much that's difficult about it, and yet something happens after a baby's born that the mom immediately almost forgets about all of the pain. Everything is beautiful in its time. Sometimes everything is painful, but it can still be beautiful. That's verse 11, the very beginning. Then Solomon says, the second part, he has set eternity in the human heart. What you and I long for is to be able to see everything before it happens and to know why it's happening. We want a purpose and a meaning. This is why we titled the series, A Search for Meaning. We want our lives to matter. We want to know what's coming and the purpose with which we are living that it exists beyond us in the days that are to come, that life will matter. And we want to see beyond that. And the pursuits of Solomon for much of his life show us that he wanted a life that was bigger than his own. And what we see through what he says here in verse 11 is that God created us this way. He created us with this desire to have a purpose that's bigger. He set eternity in our hearts. We long for something that we don't presently have. We are searching for it. And I think that's what, look around our society. The things that people give themselves over to are come from this desire to make their lives matter and have meaning and purpose. I think this is partially why politics is so popular today because people want to give themselves to a cause, to a community. They want to know that their way of thinking is making a difference in society. Now, I would say politics is Havel. It's smoke. By the time you grab onto it, it's not going to have any meaning. But you see in there a drive, a desire to make something of your life that's bigger than yourself. We want our lives to transcend beyond the mundane realities of life. He has set eternity in our hearts. And if the desires that you have are unfulfilled in this life under the sun, Solomon would tell us it's meant to teach us that we were created for another world. There was something else we were made for, and that's what we should be searching for. And then the last part of verse 11, we can't fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We can't fathom everything God has done and is doing. I remember last February, Rose and I went to Arizona, and part of our, our time there, we went to the Grand Canyon. And everybody, when they talk about like the Grand Canyon and other, other beautiful places, they'll say this phrase, a picture doesn't do it justice, right? I think about that like with the crater, crater Lake. A picture doesn't do it justice. You have to see it with your eyes. But the Grand Canyon was different for me. The Grand Canyon, like being there, doesn't do it justice. There was no way to take it all in in one glance. You had to look here and there and move your glance all the way over there. And even then, you're only getting a little sliver of the Grand Canyon. It was kind of mind-blowing to be there looking at this vast expanse and knowing I could drive six hours that way and I'd still be on the Grand Canyon. That's just mind-blowing how big it was. We can't make sense of it all. That's what Solomon is saying at the end of verse 11. Now, for the secular person that has no desire to know or to seek God, that reality is incredibly demoralizing. Because what it says to them is that there are things that you will not know and that you will never know, and life will not make sense to you. 
That's the reality. It's like Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me. If you're not going to seek that God, you're never going to know the purpose that you have for life. But for a person who does want to seek God, who wants to be a person of faith, who wants to know him, the reality that we cannot fathom everything that God has done and is doing and will do should birth faith in us. There is a mystery and a complexity to what God is doing that we will never understand. And mystery leads to faith. As we want to seek God, it should birth, it should lead to faith within us. So we need mystery in order to honor God. Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. The mystery of life leads to faith and allows us to honor God. And so we're all grasping at things under the sun, trying to give life a sense of meaning, trying to understand what the point of all of this is. And so the teacher, Solomon, says to us, it's because God has given us this impulse. But then God has also frustrated this impulse because we can't know it all. Kind of confusing, right? Why does God do that? Why did God make it so we would have this impulse to have our life make a difference and have meaning and purpose to it, and yet we wouldn't be able to understand everything God's doing? That's what Solomon's saying in verse 11. And I think he answers it. Verse 14 says this, God does it so that people will fear him. God does all that so that you and I will fear God. Not fear him in the sense that we're scared of him or he's some awful presence that we should run away from. Fear in a a sense of awe and wonder that God's in control and I can surrender myself to him. He exists far beyond the things under the sun and is worthy of my adoration and my worship and my devotion. I fear him in that way because he is beyond me and yet cares for me. And so if that's the truth, what's our response? What's our response? I would put it this way, first in the negative. You can miss where you are by focusing on where you want to be. It's easy to miss where you are when you focus on where you want to be. We could put it in the positive by saying wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. That's what Solomon is trying to impart, that wisdom that he's trying to impart to us. I know that life, if you're younger, life moves incredibly slow right? You want to get on to the next thing. You want your independence. You want to have all the things that the people who are older than you have that you don't have. And then when you get older, life moves incredibly fast. One of my favorite phrases about parenting, the days are long, but the years are short. Life moves fast. And both the young and the old, we struggle to truly be present in the moment. The older person, it's hard to be present in the moment because it feels like it passes by so quick. And the younger person struggles to be present in the moment because they actually want to move on to the next thing. It is hard to be present right where you are. And Solomon's encouragement to us is just simply to enjoy life. Enjoy life. When things are good, when the bank account is full, when you have good health, when the pantry has plenty of food, when, you're, when everything is going well, enjoy life. But on the flip side, he says... When things are hard, when the money isn't there, when the pantry is empty, when you don't have good health, enjoy life. It's a gift. 
And I was actually reading through, I've been reading through Ecclesiastes every week, and a, a piece, this wasn't even in the sermon, I literally read this this morning, and it just stuck out to me differently. That kind of answers this question. What is Solomon encouraging us to do? The reality of life, he, uh, Ecclesiastes seven fourteen. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one, the happiness, the good, as well as the other, the bad. God's made both. And his encouragement, consider. Consider what? That God's involved. Paul says it in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. God's at work. There's going to be a glory revealed in us that far outweighs any of the bad, the difficult. And another way to put it is how John Piper says this. God's at work. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God's at work. God's at work. He is over it all and cares intimately for you as well. And so as I've been studying and preparing for our time here this morning, looking at Ecclesiastes 3, I know, I know, I'm thinking just about conversations I've had this week. I know that this is like what I've just placed on you. It kind of feels like a heavy weight in the circumstances some of you are facing. Some of you, death of a loved one in recent months, cancer diagnosis that you're figuring out what it means and how much longer you have. I know there's infertility issues in marriages. And on the flip side, miscarriages that are so disheartening. And health issues, rampant. And financial struggles. And marriage problems where you're wondering if you're still going to be married in another month. Those are all the circumstances that I'm thinking about in conversations that I've just had this week. Those are all present in the room right now. And even if they're not true of you, they're probably true of the person sitting next to you. And here is Solomon kind of placing this on us. And how will we respond? Will we be the people of faith that says, God, this is not what I want. This is not what I desire. But I know that you are good. And I trust. I want to be a person of faith that takes this next step closer to you. Even in the midst of the hardship I face, I long to draw near to you amidst the struggle I face. And so that's really going to be our theme as we partake communion, as we spend time in prayer later this morning. I know the things that you face are heavy, are hard, difficult, and God can still be good. God can still be good and life can still be a gift even in the midst of the really difficult things. And so you know what God says to us through Ecclesiastes 3? How would I summarize these 15 verses? He says to you, in the good and the bad, in the season of plenty, in the season of little, he says, I got you. I'm the master baker, weaving it all together so that you might fear me and come to know me and experience a life of abundance with me. I got you. That's what he says to you. I got you. I'm taking you through this. I am in charge. I'm over it all. And I'm walking with you.